This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. If you would take your Bibles at this time, and our New Testament reading will come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, and our reading will begin in verse 3. We read, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin... You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, our discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. And now we'll turn to our scripture passage for the sermon text this morning, which we find in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, we'll be beginning in verse 10. On the twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, Does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, With this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And then, or excuse me, now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew 
and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Well, good morning. You should take your Bibles and turn to Haggai chapter 2. Uh, let me pray and uh, ask for God's help and blessing upon our time together. Father, we're grateful for another day that we can gather together this Lord's Day to worship you. Thank you that we can sing your praise, that we can take time to pause and pray and seek your face. Thank you for the gathered church this morning. As we gather together, we recognize that some are coming with different challenges and struggles. We lift up one another to you. Thank you for the body of Christ and the way that you allow us to minister to each other. But ultimately, God, we entrust each other to you because you are the shepherd of our souls. You are so good to care for us and feed us guide us and lead us. And we pray that even this morning you would take your word and truly shepherd us by feeding us what you'd have us to, to, to take into our souls. Thank you for your word that we have the opportunity to gather underneath the authority of it. So speak to us by your spirit. Help us to hear. Help us to learn and help us to apply. We Pray that Christ would be honored in all that's said and done in our, our service and in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 2, and we have been uh, in a series. We've been studying through this book, and we have come to what is the fourth message uh, in this series, but... Uh, we, it, the, the book is broken down in four different prophecies. And so this morning, we have the privilege of looking at what is really the third prophecy uh, to, uh, through Haggai to God's people. As you know, if you've been following along, that Haggai is being used here by God. He's a prophet, and he is uh, speaking God's word to God's people. And his purpose in, in this book, in this message, is to... Uh, to encourage the people to rebuild the temple that has been left in ruins. Uh, we find ourselves uh, in the middle of a story, uh, in the middle of the bigger story of all of God's word, of all of God's plan. And certainly, uh, we find ourselves at a moment where God is calling his people to not only rebuild, but stay at the work that he's called them to. Here, uh, we can kind of recognize um, how God is calling a people to do a task that is about something way bigger than just the task itself. Uh, the temple represents something very big. It represents God. It represents God's glory. Uh, it's, it's the place where God's people come to meet with God. Uh, the temple is the place where the sacrifices are, are made and where they're reminded of the promise of the forgiveness of sins. 
And so for this place to be left or laying in ruins says something about God and about his glory. Uh, I can remember uh, approximately a year after the 9-11 incident. Uh, and uh, my wife and I had the privilege of going to New York and to kind of uh, visit the area and the grounds and to, to recognize that even after a year or more, it was still just as if nothing had been done, still left in ruins. Now, we understand that that, that was something that, was, that we took pride in, that it needed to be built back up. It needed to, because that would speak something. Uh, first of all, for the city of New York, it would speak something. But, but it wasn't just for the city of New York. In a sense, it was for all of the United States. It was for, there was pride in America to say, no, we're not, gonna, we're not going to be defeated. And for this to be built back up. Could you imagine that if today we're, we're now 20-some years removed from that day, Do you imagine if we were to go down to New York and it still looked the way it looked 20 years ago? Well, that's actually about where we find ourselves in the whole dating process here with the rebuilding of the temple. It's, It's 20 years or so, and it's still laying in ruins. God has called his people. Earlier in the book we've seen he's called his people now to get about the task, and the task is, is much bigger than just building a building. It's about God. It's about his, his cause. It's about his glory. And so just as, as the, the, the rebuilding uh, of, of the, the area where the towers fell would, would speak volumes and would be assigned to other nations, that much more so, the temple... Uh, is a sign to the nations that God is alive, that God is well, that God is with his people. And so God is serious about the task, and he wants his people to be as well. This is a unique book where we're given some datings, we're given some uh, understanding of how the, when this took place and the process of it. Uh, it, it the opening verse of chapter 1 tells us a date that, it, that this happened in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. When we come to our text this morning, chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year, now we recognize that they we're just talking a few months away. And at the end of the, the, the book, we're told uh, that really this whole book ju- is just a span of four months. And for Haggai himself, this is about all we know of him. We get this four-month glimpse where God uses this man as a messenger to do a task, and it's just kind of a reminder to us that sometimes our lives are like that, like, like we live this whole life and maybe a lot of it is insignificant, and God, yet God may just call us to something, one thing, a glorious task that we get to be a part of, and if we are, it's a blessing, but it's okay if he just keeps us in something of a kind of an insignificant state. All of it is supposed to be about him and his glory. Well, in our our time together this morning, I've kind of broken our text down into five points that we'll use as as we kind of walk through this. Uh, I started using points because I had people say to me, you know, your sermons have no point. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'll add points then. Maybe that'll help. So here we are. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And the first thing that we want to see in this is that God declares what is Holy and unholy. 
Now, before we get into the details of that, before we talk a little bit about the, the questions that are asked and the way it's interpreted and all of that, the primary thing we want to see here is that it is God himself who declares what is holy and what is not. Notice that in our text, the question comes from Haggai, which obviously is coming from the Lord, and he's to ask the priests about the law. The priests who are dedicated to the law, the priests who are governed by it, and they're called to teach it and apply it. They are people who are to interpret the law. This is a very important point for us to recognize, that this is not going to the priest to ask them their opinion. This is not going to the priest for them to tell us how it ought to be. This is for the priest to say what the law says. Now, just if you happen to be a visitor here, this is something we want to make very clear to you, that the primary point of our church is to sit under the authority of the Word of God. We are not a people who have come up with our own ideas or ways. We are underneath what God's Word says. And, what, and, and the, the priority of this pulpit, the priority of all the teaching that takes place in this church, everything about what the church strives, strives to do is to take us back to what does the Word of God say? Now, in this specific way, we're being told that it's God who determines whether something is holy or not. The Bible is very clear to tell us that God is holy. He's a holy God. Later we'll talk about the problem with that. Because the Bible also goes on to say that not only is God holy, but you and I are not which creates our dilemma. God has a lot to say about holiness. Which leads us then to our second point, that you cannot bring holiness out of what's unholy. Now this is, this is where it takes us then into those, those two questions. We see them there in verses 11 through verse 14. And the first question regarding what the law says about these specific situations. The first one, we find in verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So the question here is, can things that are consecrated, set apart for God, those things, can they make can make unholy things holy by contact? And the answer comes clearly, no. Reminds us that holiness is not something that's just caught like a cold. Holiness is not something that you just can gain by being in the right place at the right time, necessarily. Going to church doesn't make us holy. Going to church doesn't make us a Christian. That being among the saints and being in a church, while those are good things and can be beneficial, they do not guarantee that I'm in a right standing with God, that my sin has been dealt with, and that I'm a believer, and that I have heaven as my home. So this 
drives home the point that we have to consider, that, that it's not enough just to be a part of the external things. Now, the second question uh, comes along right after it, where then the priest turns and says, can, can or, or they ask the priest, can uh, a person who is unclean by contact with a dead body, if that person touches any of these elements that have already been mentioned, does it become unclean? And then the answer comes back from the priest, it does become unclean. So now the question is, can defiled things make holy things unclean? And the priests say, yes. Dirtiness tarnishes cleanliness. Holiness is, is not above contamination. These verses come in the middle of this story about rebuilding the temple. And if we go back and read, they were already about rebuilding the temple. And so you kind of wonder, like, well, what is going on here? Why are these verses here? What, why is this being mentioned? So you turn to John Calvin when you have those kind of questions. And John Calvin says that it very well may be that the issue here is of the motives. The issue here is of the internal So, while you're doing all that you're doing externally, you're building this, you could be building some grand edifice. But, even so, if underneath all of that, so that's the external, what about the internal? And and we're reminded then that if, if there's pollution and we go to do good things, those good things are still polluted. This is why I can't just make myself right with God. I'm a sinner. I'm not clean. And so I can't just do some good works and offer those before God. They're still tainted. They're still covered with my sinfulness. Thomas Brooks here speaks of of the formalities here. and And he says that formality is more like Formality is more light than life, he says. It's more notion than motion. He says there may be understanding, but the heart is not moved by the knowledge. It is more shadow than substance. I mean, just, just hear that line for a moment. There may be understanding, but the heart isn't moved by the knowledge. Can you, can you take a moment and examine yourself? And say, I, I get all this knowledge, but is my heart moved? God, God is not just wanting us to gather in worship. He wants us to engage in worship. We don't really care how many people are here. I mean, that, that's nice. <laughs> but, but God's not looking going, wow, that, I'm impressed. You packed out a pew. He's looking right down into the heart and saying, but you're sitting there, but you're not really worshiping me. And it causes us to consider why we do what we do, whether we do it with a heart that is truly unto God. 
Understand that I read this this week, and this is the text that I've been given, thanks to Aaron. And I say that, I mean it. He, you come to a text and you say, okay, there's holy things. You're unholy. Don't defile it. Okay, Lord, I'll try. I'm going to preach, but this is a holy thing that happens here. What am I doing here? In those moments, it's like the Lord saying, Jerry, okay, you can preach, but what about your life? Notice the third point here. That God cannot have fellowship with what is defiled. In verse 14 is when the word kind of comes in a thunderous way here. When Haggai answers and says to them, so it is with this people. Now obviously he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, what they offer there is unclean. Notice the emphasis in verse 14 there, that what they are is, all that really matters is what they are before me, the Lord says. It doesn't matter what they think of themselves, ultimately. It doesn't matter if they're impressing everybody else and everybody else thinks, well, that's really a godly. It's before the Lord that matters. And the Lord has pronounced, just as we said in, in the first point, that he's the one who gets to declare. And he declares that they are unclean. So let's stop spending so much of our time and efforts trying to look the part before others Or try to convince ourselves when that's not the judge or the standard. The Lord is our judge. He declares. He declares about every work that we offer. And notice then that that this is what he declares about them. That they are unclean. That their works are unclean. So much so that by verse 17 he says, I struck you. That, That this is This is not acceptable. This is not okay. God is is going to deal with their sin and their uncleanness, and he'll do whatever it takes. Notice that God is more than willing to acknowledge that the distress that they face is a result of his sovereign hand. God just comes right out and says it. I did it. I struck you. You want to know why you're in the condition you're in? You want to know why back in chapter 1 you're doing all this and yet it just gets blown away? Look no further. It's amazing how often churches and Christians try to explain every calamity and affliction away as if God could never be the culprit. Uh, Recently heard about a pastor who, who went in to visit a boy who's 11 years old and the boy has since passed away. He had leukemia. And he visits him and while he's in there with the parents a chaplain from the hospital walks in, and probably good that the pastor was there. And the, but, but the chaplain walks in, and 
no doubt well-intentioned, turns to the mom and says, I just want you to know that God has nothing to do with this. And the mom turned back to the chaplain and said, I find absolutely no comfort in that. No, I have to believe that God is in this. That God is working even this for good and for his glory. God is more than willing to acknowledge and does not shy away that that, that he's the one who brings blessings, but he also brings calamity. He's clear here about what's happening. He's, He's very clear. I struck you in verse 17. But he's also clear in why. Notice as it goes on, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. And here's the point, right? Why did he do what he was doing? He says, yet you did not turn to me. So what was the point? What was the intent? God God did this so that they might turn to him. It shows us once again the graciousness of our God and the kindness of our God that he is always at work to do what is good in our lives. As the Hebrew passage we read earlier says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Or as C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Remember that God does what he does to awaken us and to bring us to himself. The pain and the trials that, are, that come are not meant to cause us to run from him, but to run to him. Is God trying to get your attention? Is he working in ways that he's, that he's trying to awaken you to turn and turn back? Number four, what we see here is that only God, only God can turn us from a life of sin to a life of blessing. Only God would do this, and only God could do this. Remember earlier in in Haggai chapter one, he, he spoke very clearly of what they were doing and how they were living for themselves. And they, in essence, basically they told God, like, God, we know you want us to do that whole temple thing, but not right now. It, it's not good when we're telling God, you know, we tell him when the right time is. That's it's not a good place to be. You know, God, God says, no, this is what I'm calling you to do, to put aside your selfishness, And make my pleasure and my glory your purpose. Live to this end. And so he he has struck them, but always with the the intent to bless them. This this is just like a history reminder for us. Every one of us can walk through this and say, yep, that's true. That's exactly what God has done in my life. I was sinful. I was disobedient. I was going my own direction. I didn't care about God. I lived for my own name, not his. And you know what? God never stopped in the sense of pursuing and 
being gracious and kind enough to not let me go, but in love called me back to himself. And sometimes he used all kind. in some situations he used some really hard scenarios to bring me to himself. It makes me think, even this morning, uh, my son who's off at boot camp, and uh, he just started dating a girl. I'm just saying that in case any of you girls thought my son was available. He's not. <laughs> Anywho, um, he started dating a girl from Cedarville, and she came up and visited. She's sitting in our, in our living room. I'm asking, you know, the 20-question kind of thing. Most of them are just generic, you know, what kind of food do you like? What sports teams do you like? I mean, she's into sports, or I wouldn't ask that. And uh, we're going down the list of things. And at some point, I just kind of generically said, did you grow up going to church? Did you, you know, have you kind of always been around? Or is this kind of like new to you? And she, and I knew her dad had passed away. But she said, honestly, it was when my dad died my junior year that I came to Christ. I thought, man. That's hard to hear. But God used a circumstance that was really hard to bring her to himself. Here, the prophet Haggai is declaring God's word saying, you need to consider. Five times in this little book, consider. Twice in chapter 1, three times in our text today, verse 15, 18, and 19, or the end of 18. He says, consider. He says, consider that before you started building the temple, how was it going for you? You know, you, you went for 20 measures and you get 10 you thought there'd be 50 and there's only 20. What's happening here? It's because, as Derek Thomas said, there's a principle underneath all of this that when you stop working for God, nothing works for you. He, it, it just seems to get blown away. Or even if you have it, it just doesn't satisfy. And like, what, what, what's happening? The amazing thing in all of this is that God has purposed to take a people who are sinful and disobedient and bless them. And he, he blesses them, obviously, by calling them back to himself and to a task, which is about the temple. And the temple speaks of something far greater as it makes them always aware of God's promise that he will be with them, that he will bless them, as we'll see again in a moment. It's the promise that there will be one who will come who will bring this blessing. The temple reminds them of God's glory. The temple reminds them of where the sacrifice is made and where their sins can be atoned for. It's, it's a constant reminder to them that while you deserve Wrath, I have chosen you and I've chosen to bless you. 
Now, I hope that every one of us can sit here and say, yeah, that's my story. I was separated from God because of my sins. What I should know is his wrath, but instead I sit here today knowing his forgiveness and his blessing. I've been reconciled to God. I've become one with him, and I'm one whom God promises to be with and to bless. (laughs) If that's your story, you're blessed. And then notice that in our last point, everybody loves to hear that, the last point Number five, blessing will not always be obvious. The blessing will not always be obvious. So important that we we recognize this. That in the closing verses here, in verse 18 and 19, he tells them to consider this. And then he says in verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? And there's no answer given, but the answer is to be no. So what that means is there's nothing extra left back here that we can now go out and sow and plant and sow and, and expect results. That we, we've already put it out there. We're waiting now. And then it goes on to say, so it's, it's out. Then it goes on to say, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, they've yielded how much? Nothing. So God is calling his people here. This is the point of this whole exhortation. If they could see the results, they wouldn't need the word from the Lord. They need a word from the Lord right now because there's nothing tangible to show that God is actually blessing. There's nothing to show for it. They're waiting. They're trusting. They're in that period of time where most of us spend, we spend most of our lives There's there's no real tangible results here, but I'm trusting the Lord. I don't see evidence of it. We have to remind ourselves constantly that God's delays are not God's denials. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen. And at the very end of this section, the last line Here's the promise, but from this day on, final four words, I will bless you. I will bless you. This is a great promise from God. It's a guarantee that I, the Lord, myself, I will promise, I will bless, I will provide over an abundant I will bless you, plural, you, God's covenant people. And how will he bless? Through the person and work of Christ. Through what all of this is pointing to. Understand that that doesn't mean that there's no trials. The whole context is a trial. Somebody recently said, all believers will go through everything an unbeliever goes through, except there's just no condemnation waiting for you. It's very important for us to keep this in mind. That God's blessing is not, if you're just looking for tangible things, if you're just looking for like, well, I'll know if God's blessing me if I get that job. 
I know God will bless me if I get that girl. I know God will bless me. I'll know that God is blessing me when this happens. You're on the wrong track. God has already blessed and demonstrated his blessing to you in the person and work of Christ. How do you know his love? Only primarily through the cross. How do you know that that will stay with you all the way to the end? Because of what he did for his son in raising him from the dead. And this is so important, isn't it? And we've got people in our congregation who've just recently lost a loved one. What, what do you tell them when they're standing there at the grave? There's no tangible evidence. I've just lost my spouse for all these years. I've, you're, you're trying to give me hope and comfort in what? Here's, here's the hope and comfort. That because Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but he rose again, He's just the first fruits of a great harvest that's to come. And he promised that anybody who believes and trusts in Christ as their Savior, they too will never die. They too will live forever. That's the hope. That's the ultimate blessing. And we trust and hold to that, that while blessing may not be obvious, it's guaranteed. May God give us the faith so that we're not, not walking through this life living by sight. No, he's called us to live by faith until the day when we actually get to see by sight the very face of the one who's provided the blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again, and we thank you for your word. Oh God, we ask that you'd help us to apply and to consider, to consider our ways Oh, God, in areas where we recognize that we've been defiled or polluted, would you forgive us? Remind us of the cost that that paid our Savior. Help us, Lord, again, to run back to you. Some who are even under afflictions and trials, may you use those to Bring us back to the place where you would have us to be, to see you as our all in all. Give us strength and faith as we wait, not seeing evidence of blessing yet, but knowing that the day will come when our faith will be turned to sight. Thank you that all of this is possible in and through your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this word. Continue to speak to us as a church. Use our time together Sunday after Sunday in these texts to transform us and conform us and make us a people that live for your glory so that others around us might see that you are real, that you're alive, and that you're a good God. You're worthy of honoring and living for. Use us 
for these great and grand purposes, not for our good, not, not because of for our glory, but, but for your name's sake, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.